Welcome to the Creative Times Summit podcast, where each episode brings you a talk from our annual convening for thinkers, dreamers, and doers working at the intersection of art and politics. Find out more at creativetime.org. This summit podcast features host and executive producer of Democracy Now!, Amy Goodman. Amy was a keynote speaker at our 2015 summit, The Curriculum, which took place at All the World's Futures, the central exhibition of the 56th Venice Biennale. Thank you very much to Nato Thompson, to Ann Pasternak, to Nancy Sved, and to, um, well, Okwe and Wazar, you can hear on Democracy Now! today. So I hope after this wonderful event, or when you go back home after the Creative Times Summit, you tune into democracynow.org and see a fascinating discussion. Also, I don't know if you're aware of the Arsenale and its past, the first industrial assembly line. It was making warships. They could make them in one day. Um, this is the place where they stretch the sails for warships. And I have people to thank who have made this smooth sailing. Because I'm not only giving this talk today, but we're broadcasting Democracy Now! on 1,300 public radio and television stations around the country and around the world right in the back of this teatro. Um, yes, uh, we are broadcasting from the 16th century building, 21st century communications. And I really have uh, Peter Yarianza and Andrea Bonaldo to thank for that. They're the people behind the scenes, the brains who make this place happen every day. To Luigi, uh, to Luigi Ricardo, uh, uh, Ricciardi of the Biennale, as well as our production crew from Zeta Group and our amazing Democracy Now! team, who here, John Hamilton and Dennis Moynihan, uh, Mike Burke and Amy Littlefield, who make this broadcast possible every day. I come originally from Pacifica Radio. It was founded after World War II in 1949 uh, by a man named Lou Hill, who was a conscientious objector. When he came out of the detention camps in California, he said, there's got to be a media outlet that is not run by corporations that profit from war. And so, Pacifica was born. The first station, KPFA in Berkeley in 1949, as George Gerbner, the founder of the cultural environment movement, would say. He was the former dean of the Annenberg School of Communications at the University of Pennsylvania. We need a media that's not run by corporations that have nothing to tell and everything to sell that are raising our children today. So... KPFA in Berkeley, 49, KPFK in Los Angeles, 59, my station in New York, WBAI, 1960. We have a station in Washington, WPFW, and the station in Houston, Texas, the Petro Metro, has a fascinating history. It went on the air in the spring of 1970. Within a few weeks, it was bombed off the air. The only radio station in the United States to be blown up. Um, the Ku Klux Klan strapped dynamite to the base of the transmitter and blew it to smithereens. It was right in the middle of Arlo Guthrie singing Alice's Restaurant, and I think that's a good song. But <laughs> they got back on their feet, they rebuilt the transmitter, and the Klan blew it up again with 15 times the amount of dynamite. Now, 
I don't remember if it was the Grand Dragon or the Exalted Cyclops, because I often confuse their titles, but he said it was his proudest act because he understood how dangerous Pacifica could be. Dangerous because it allowed people to speak for themselves. And when you hear someone speaking from their own experience, there is nothing more powerful. There's a pavilion right next door where you have indigenous languages coming from every speaker. You go to each one. It sounds like a cacophony or a symphony when you walk in, but to each listening post, and you start to listen to someone speaking in their own language, and suddenly those languages melt away, and we're communicating with each other. That's what these hate groups fear, communication. Whether it's a Palestinian child or an Israeli grandmother, whether it is an uncle from Afghanistan or an aunt from Iraq, you, I didn't say agree with what you hear. I mean, how often do we even agree with our family members? But you begin to understand where they're coming from. That's the beginning of peace. I believe the media can be the greatest force for peace on earth. Instead, it is all too often wielded as a weapon of war. And that's what we have to challenge. In your countries, I don't know how your media works, but in the United States, you've got this small circle of pundits on all of the networks. It's as if they're same small circle and they just drop the different network logos behind them. The small circle of pundits who know so little about so much, explaining the world to us and getting it so wrong. Yes, we have to break through. We have to take the media back. Now, Pacifica was founded in 1949, right after World War II, right before was fascist Spain, where the Franco forces taking over. Here is where we can talk about the power of art. So many people around the world may know about what happened in Guernica, Spain, because of Pablo Picasso, who is outside of Paris. He was in exile. The World's Fair in Paris had commissioned him to do something. He wasn't sure what he was going to do. And then Franco, working with the Germans and with Mussolini here in Italy, experimenting on defenseless populations, trying out modern warfare. The Germans bombed repeatedly, blew up Guernica. Picasso was in such a rage that in a 21-day frenzy, he painted one of the most famous, not only pieces, paintings, but anti-war symbols, Guernica. You all know it, the 20 by 30 painting. The animals and the people, their faces reflecting the agony of war. He said his painting would never be shown in fascist Spain. He would keep it from there. So he had three um, weavings done, reproductions, because he was afraid just this one painting would be destroyed. And they would travel the world. One of those reproductions, those 
tapestry reproductions of Guernica hung outside the UN Security Council in New York for many, many years. And then came February of 2003, the lead up to the invasion of Iraq. Remember when Secretary of State General Colin Powell gave that speech at the UN, that final push for war that was the nail in the coffin for so many, a speech he would even admit would be a blot on his career because of the lies, the allegations of weapons of mass deception. So there that tapestry hung right outside the UN Security Council. But the forces that be at the UN and the United States did not want that anti-war symbol as the backdrop to the US and other countries' pronouncements for war. And so they drew a blue curtain over the Guernica. And so the Guernica painting once again came to life. It became the symbol in anti-war protests all over the world. You remember February 2003. Probably many of you were out in New York. It was very cold. Millions of people rock the world for peace. But the U.S. did go to war anyway and attacked Iraq. What was it that one general said about the attack on Iraq? That's right. Every great work of art goes through messy phases while it's in transition. A lump of clay can become a sculpture. Blobs of paint can become paintings which inspire. No, that wasn't Pablo Picasso speaking. It was Major General William B. Caldwell IV, spokesman for the multinational force Iraq, comparing the carnage in Iraq to a work of art in another audacious attempt to paint Iraq as anything other than a catastrophe. Trying to cloak the bombing of the cradle of civilization back to the cradle as a piece of art, a sculpture, a painting in formation. That's why we need a media that tells the truth, where you hear the voices of people describing their own experience. Here we are in Venice, Italy, in this gorgeous, historic place. Back in the United States, our country is being rocked by the Black Lives Matter movement and by the authorities that don't value those black lives. You know, Sunday was the anniversary, the first anniversary of the killing of Michael Brown. And you know what happened on that day. In Ferguson, there was major protest, but there was also yet another killing. The police killed another young 18-year-old African... Police shot. He's critically injured. A young 18-year-old African-American teenager who was friends with and went to high school with Michael Brown. How is it possible? It is only possible when we allow it to be possible. It is not just the shooter. As the great activist uh, in North Carolina, 
um, a man who has led the Moral Mondays movement, said, the perpetrator has been arrested. This was talking about the Charleston shootings. But the killer is still at large. We have to look at the system and the structures that have for so long told us black lives don't matter. We went to Ferguson, Democracy Now! How many of you tune into Democracy Now! on radio, on television, on the internet at democracynow.org? Well, I'm really glad there are a lot of people are not raising their hands because, well, you have something to look forward to because it is a platform to communicate with people everywhere that you might otherwise never meet. We went to Ferguson after the killing of Michael Brown, this young man who was killed at high noon, his body on a hot summer's day, lay there for four and a half hours. This past Sunday, people were silent for four and a half minutes to honor the young man who laid like an animal in the street. We went to Ferguson, and we talked to people there. We talked to people in the summer. We talked to people in the winter because the protests just kept on continuing. And I think about what some of those young people said, standing in the streets, never leaving. Often the media would go there, you'd see the protests, but where were the people who were protesting being interviewed? That's the voices that I wanted to bring you today, talking about, as one young man told us, I always like to quote people accurately, he's freezing cold, he's just wearing a sweatshirt, we're going to shake the heavens. The media obsessed in the United States is, will these protests turn violence? which made me think about Dr. Martin Luther King saying, as long as justice is postponed, we always stand on the verge of these darker nights of social disruption. He said, it's not enough, this is Dr. King, for me to stand before you tonight and condemn riots. It would be morally irresponsible for me to do that without at the same time condemning the contingent intolerable conditions that exist in our society. These conditions are the things that cause individuals to feel that they have no other alternative than to engage in violent rebellions to get attention. And Dr. King ended by saying, and I must say tonight that a riot is the language of the unheard. A riot is the language of the unheard. We're going to shake the heavens, said this young man, as he faced off with the riot police, his breath visible in the freezing night air, shivering in the cold, but he wasn't going anywhere. It's that fire, that inextinguishable commitment, not the burning embers of buildings, that those who profit from injustice have the most to fear. I can't bear to go through the litany of names, not going back far in history. Just this past July 19th, how is it possible that a young man or a 43-year-old African-American man named Samuel DuBose in Cincinnati is pulled over because he doesn't have a front license plate on his car? And before you know it, he is shot in the head by a police officer.
That was two days after the anniversary of the killing of Eric Garner in Staten Island. Eric Garner, 43-year-old African-American man, same age, same color, father of six and grandfather as well, is taken down by police because he was selling Lucy's loose cigarettes. In many circles, he would just be called a good capitalist in the United States. He's taken down by police. Daniel Pantaleo, the officer in Staten Island, New York, puts him in a chokehold, takes him down, and his people around are begging for someone to help this man who had gasped 11 times, I can't breathe. The police not only killed him, they did not allow anyone around him to come in and help as he lay dying. But a young man, and this is where art and representation comes in, named Ramsey Orta, takes out his cell phone and starts filming. And he captures the whole killing of Eric Garner. Of course, it's a video that goes viral. And who goes to jail? Does Daniel Pantaleo even get indicted? No, the prosecutor who refused to indict has now been elected to Congress. The only person who went to jail in the death of this man, Mr. Eric Garner, was Ramsey Orta, the man who filmed repeatedly arrested. He and his wife, who was also arrested, say they had been constantly harassed by police since that day. In one of the arrests, Ramsey Orta said, the police said, you filmed us, so we're filming you. And then there's Sandra Bland. You all have heard of her. Why can't we hear of these young people in their lives, not in their deaths? July 10th, she's going into a job, historically black college, Prairie View A&M in Waller, Texas. And she's pulled over for not properly signaling a lane change. How many of us have done this? And the police officer tells her to get out of the car or he's going to light her up. Light her up? He pulls out a taser. She gets out of the car and the police video cam shows all of this. And then another video shows when she's down on the ground and she says, why are you slamming my head into the ground? And she says, I have epilepsy. And the police officer named Brian Insinia, a white police officer, responds, good. And she's taken to jail in three days. She would be dead. She was facing a $5,000 bail. Why was she even in jail? It is the system that we must analyze. We must hear these voices of people on both sides of the bars. We need a media that reflects the people, the majority of people who make up our societies. I really do think that those who are opposed to war, those who care about war and peace, those who are deeply concerned about the inequality in this country, the growing gap in Italy and the United States, all over the world between rich and poor, those who are concerned about the fate of the planet, climate change, are not a fringe minority, not even a silent majority, but the silenced majority, silenced by the corporate media, which is why we have to take it back. Uh, my brother, also a journalist, David Goodman, and I wrote a book together. The first was called The Exception to the Rulers. That should be the motto of all the media, The Exception to the Rulers. It's the motto of democracy now. Our second book is called Static. Why static? 
Well, because even though we have high digital television and high, def high definition television and digital radio, still all we get is static. That veil of distortion and lies and misrepresentations and half-truths that obscure reality when what we need the media to give us is the dictionary definition of static. Criticism, opposition, unwanted interference. We need a media that covers power and not covers for power. We need a media that is the fourth estate, not for the state. And we need a media that covers the movements that create static and make history. Democracy Now! started in 1996 as the only daily election show in public broadcasting. We started on nine community radio stations. We thought we would uh, wrap up the operation after nine months after the election. We wanted to bring out the voices of people on the ground. I was in an underground house in Haiti at the time when Pacifica called and said, would you like to host this? I said, people are killed when they go to the polls here. In Haiti, in East Timor, in the United States, most people don't vote. Why would I come back to cover, spend all of this time covering the elections that most people, amazingly enough, despite all the media attention, are not involved with? But I never thought Americans were apathetic. I wanted to know, when I really thought about it, what are people doing in their communities? Because they are doing so much. And so that's what we did from state to state, using the primaries as a map to go around the country. How are people engaged in their communities? So the show, after the election, became more popular than even before, and it grew from nine radio stations in 1996, then the week of September 11th, 2001, the week of the... Uh, attacks on the World Trade Center. We were the closest national broadcast to ground zero. We were starting on one TV station that day by chance, and the show just took off. And now, as we move into our 20th anniversary, 1,300 public radio and television stations air Democracy Now! one a week picking us up. Why? It is that hunger for independent voices that we must demand of all of our media because so often the media are using public spaces. You know, the airwaves aren't private. They are not owned by corporations, though they act like the owners. They are simply leased by them, and if they don't use them responsibly, they should have their licenses revoked. We need an open media. The media can be the greatest force for peace on Earth. We came around the corner the other day when we first came to Venice, right to the Teatro, to set up our broadcast. And the first pavilion I saw was Indonesia's pavilion. It's right next to um, this theater. And I looked inside, and there was a kind of stylized military vehicle. And just like with Guernica, as it brings you back and it hits you so viscerally, I felt punched in the stomach, it brought me back. Yes, Indonesia, the fourth largest country in the world, presided over the one of the worst genocides of the 20th century. And it was the occupation, the invasion of East Timor, a tiny island nation about 300 miles above Australia. And I want to end with this story. In 1975, Indonesia invaded East Timor, it was December 7, 1975, the day after Secretary of State Henry Kissinger and President Ford met with Suharto, the long-reigning dictator in Indonesia, gave the go-ahead for the U.S. invasion, flew off to meet with another 
uh, dictator in the world, Marcos of the Philippines. And the Indonesian military invaded East Timor by land, by air, and by sea. 90% of the weapons used were from the United States. They needed to get the go-ahead Indonesia. They were afraid the U.S. would cut off the weapons flow for engaging in an, an offensive act. But since uh, Ford and Kissinger assured Suharto they wouldn't mind, the invasion happened. In the first days, thousands of people were rounded up. They were brought to the coastline in Dili, the capital of East Timor, and they were shot into the harbor. Indonesia closed East Timor to the outside world and commenced the slaughter. A third of the population was killed. In the United States, we knew a lot about Cambodia, what Pol Pot did, because Pol Pot was an official enemy of the United States. Secretary of State President would repeatedly go after Pol Pot, as they should have, but the media dutifully followed suit. But in the case of Indonesia, an ally of the United States, though it was involved in this genocide. The president, the secretary of state remained mum, and so did the media. I went to East Timor in 1990 and 91 with a very brave journalist named Alan Nairn. Um, in 1991, we were there um, because there was supposed to be a UN delegation that would come for the first time after 17 years of the slaughter. The slaughter in Timor proportionally larger than in Cambodia. Um, and we got there at the end of October 1991, went to the main Catholic church in Dili, the capital of Timor, called the Motayal Church, and the women were wailing in the, in the mass. I didn't know why, but afterwards they showed us, was this the standard sorrow of Timor? Did something happen? In fact, the night before the Indonesian military had surrounded the church, shot into it, and killed a young man named Sebastio Gomez. The blood was still wet on the steps outside. Um, We learned in the next two weeks that the UN delegation that would visit Timor for the first time to tell the world about the slaughter was not going to take place. We later learned it was at the behest of the United States. And everyone was terrified. In this two-week time, people had all taken refuge in the Catholic churches, the only places, public places, people could congregate, dropping out of school, work, leaving their homes, thinking they could be protected here so they could speak to the delegation when it came and they wouldn't be arrested before it did. But at some point, it was decided the delegation wouldn't come, so people were terrified. How would they be protected? It was November 12, 1991. We got word there would be a mass march. When we had arrived, the day after Sebastian was killed, there was a funeral, and a 1,000 people came out, which was unheard of in Timor. Two weeks later, November 12th, 1991, they held a two-week commemoration for his death. Most people didn't know Sebastio, just another young man deeply concerned about what was happening in his country, but they had come out because they saw it as a violation of their church and they understood what he represented. So two weeks later, we went to the church at eight in the morning. The, so many people came to the church, they hold, had to hold the mass outside, the priests giving communion under the trees, and then the people streamed into the street, and the Catholic school students, the girls and boys, were pulling out banners from their blouses, their Catholic school uniforms that were written on bedsheets that said, why the Indonesian military shoot our church? And they appealed to President Bush, that was President H. George H.W. Bush at the time, to do something. 
the world, the United Nations to do something. We followed this procession of thousands of people, more and more joined from their workplaces, from their homes, to the cemetery. And at the cemetery, the people gathered. They were hemmed in by cemetery walls, and we saw the Indonesian military march up, again holding US M16s. The people couldn't get away. The wall stopped them. Only people at the very back could flee. Alan and I decided to walk to the front of the crowd, because although we knew the Indonesian military had committed many massacres in the past, they'd never done it in front of Western journalists. Maybe just our presence could head off this attack. We always hid our equipment. This time, we took it out. I put my tape recorder over my shoulder. I held up my microphone. Alan put the camera above his head, and we walked to the front of the crowd. The soldiers were marching up 12 to 15 abreast, USM-16s at the ready position. People couldn't escape. As they rounded the corner, the soldiers, they swept past us, and they opened fire on the crowd, gunning people down from right to left. A group of soldiers came at us. They took my microphone, flashing it in my face, as if to say, this is what we don't want, and they slammed me to the ground. Alan got a photograph of them opening fire on the crowd. He jumped on top of me to protect me, and then they took their USM-16s like baseball bats and slammed them against his skull until they fractured it. We were laying on the road. Alan was covered in blood. They were killing everyone around us. An old Timorese man was next to us in a sewer ditch, putting his hands up on a prayer sign, and they took the butts of their rifles, and they would smash them into his face. At a certain point, they put the guns to our heads. They now stripped us of everything, and they lined up in firing squad fashion. They started to scream two things, politique and, Indone and Australia. Politique because they were saying, this is political to witness this, but this is our job as journalists, to go to where the silence is. And they were saying, Australia, they were asking if we were from Australia. We knew what that meant, how dangerous this was. Because when Indonesia invaded East Timor in 1975, there were five Australian journalists covering the lead-up to the invasion. They put them up against a house, and they executed them all. There was one left named Roger East the next day in Timor. He was in a radio station reporting for the world, and they dragged him out of the radio station. As he shouted, I'm from Australia, they shot him into the harbor with so many thousands of other Timorese. So we knew how significant this was because the Australian government did not stand up for their journalists. We believe because years later, Australia and Indonesia would sign the Timor Gap Treaty, dividing Timor's oil between Australia and Indonesia. Oil is the source of so much pain in the world. So as we lay on the ground, Alan covered in blood, the guns at our heads, we shouted back, no, America, America. They'd kick me in the stomach. When I'd get my breath back, I'd say, America. Eventually, they took the guns from our heads. We believe because we were from the same country their weapons were from. They would have to pay a price for us for killing that they had never had to pay for killing the Timorese. And they moved on. A Red Cross jeep pulled up. We were able to get into it. Same with the old man in the sewer ditch. The Red Cross driver picked him up and put him in the jeep. And then dozens of Timorese jumped on top of us, on top of the vehicle, and we drove as a human mass to the hospital. When we got to the hospital, the doctors and nurses started to cry when they saw us not because we were in worse shape than the people of Timor or those people that day. In fact, the Indonesian military killed more than 250 Timorese that day in the cemetery, not one of the larger massacres. But I think the doctors and nurses cried because of what we represent to the people of Timor, 
not just me and Alan, but Americans, people from all over the world outside of Timor, all of you. Two things, the shield and the sword. The shield, because the American people, people from countries all over the world, the most powerful countries, they have power. The sword, the governments represent. In the United States, all too often, the US government has given weapons to human rights abusing countries or used them themselves, as in Afghanistan and Iraq. And they just saw that shield bloodied that day, and they were in deep despair. We got out of the country. We were able to go into hiding. We got to the airport. Um, had, I met with the bishop, and he clean, helped to clean up Alan, gave him a new shirt covered in blood. We thought if we could get to the airport before the next shirt would be stained in blood, maybe we could get away with the Indonesian military not realizing where we had been. There was one plane out. We were able to get onto that plane. We made our way to West Timor, which is Indonesian, and then on to the United States, held a news conference in Washington after Alan got out of the hospital, his skull fractured, and talked about what enabled the Indonesian military to do this, the weapons of the United States. There was a nationwide movement that grew up in the United States and around the world to stop arming human rights abusing regimes. Fast forward to 1999, the people of East Timor got to vote for their independence in a UN-sponsored referendum, and three years later, they became independent, and this is where I'll end, May 20th, 2002. 100,000 people gathered in Tasitolo, a sandy plain right next to Dili, the capital, to celebrate the newest nation in the world. All many world leaders were there. Kofi Annan, then UN Secretary General, gave a speech. Then Shanana Gushmal, the rebel leader of East Timor, long imprisoned by the Indonesians, got up and speaking in at least four languages, putting so many to shame, he unfurled the flag of the Democratic Republic of East Timor. There was this fireworks display, and you could see the light reflected in the tear-stained faces of the people of Timor. They had resisted, and they had won at an unbelievably high price, at an unacceptably high price. But this nation of survivors had prevailed. And they thanked people, particularly from the most powerful countries, who had told their, their leaders to stop funding human rights abusing regimes. And they are a lesson to all of us, the people of East Timor. Whether we are journalists, artists, activists, doctors, lawyers, nurses, whether we're grocery store um, owners or just shoppers, whether we are organizers, employed or unemployed, we have a decision to make every day, every hour of every day, whether we want to represent the sword or the shield. Democracy Now! Lead support for this podcast comes from the Trust for Mutual Understanding, Blum Media International, and the Blum Family Foundation. Additional creative time support is provided by the Ford Foundation, Lamben Foundation, Toby Devin Lewis, and the Andy Warhol Foundation for the Visual Arts, as well as Creative Time's generous trustees and individual donors. Since 1972, Creative Time has worked with artists to contribute to the dialogues, debates, and dreams of our times. To show your support for Creative Time, please visit creativetime.org slash join.